I'm so glad to be with you guys. Uh, I was at the university yesterday across the street. I don't know. I have found out there's very little interaction. I don't know if you know, there's a university across the street from me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really great. You should visit sometime. But um, so I was with them, and I'm so grateful to be with you guys. Um, that was, I mean, I just, I, I feel grateful. I feel like the Holy Spirit has, is here and has shown up. And so I'm grateful to the Holy Spirit. And, um, and also to the violinist. If I, I, I don't know, um, the, uh, particularly, you're the, the violin took me to Jesus this morning. And so thank you. Um, what's your name? Adam. Thank you, Adam. Um, so uh, this morning, um, I'm, I'm in here from Austin, Texas, uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about um, uh, my latest book, Prayer in the Night. So if you've read it, you're going to, this is, some of this is review, and I'm sorry. Um, but if you write a book, it takes like two and a half years. You want to, I mean, that's what you're going to talk about for the next year. So, um, so that book, um, came out, out of a hard time in my life. It, it, I wrote it sort of, it begins, the book begins in the year 2017. And it was 2017, um, the beginning of the year, we, we moved across the country from Austin, where we live now, to Pittsburgh. Um, a week later, my father passed away suddenly in the night. Um, and then I, about well, the day after his funeral, we found out with great joy that we were pregnant. And three weeks later, had had a miscarriage. And then got pregnant again and had a, a hard pregnancy, was on bed rest for a while, and lost uh, that, our second child. It was in um, the second trimester, a son. So we lost a little boy. Um, so, that's kind of a heavy place to start. This whole thing's going to be a little heavy. I mean, your theme is look to the cross, so if you didn't want it heavy, it should have been like look to the resurrection or joy or <laughs> <laughs> the movies. Um, but, uh, so, but I want to point out, and the, the, my book is really about pretty, in some ways, ordinary suffering, in that there's, um, there's a kind of a genre of Christian books that are about the worst thing that's ever happened to someone. So the loss of a spouse, terminal illness, loss of a child. And there's some great books, and I could recommend my favorites among those. Um, mine, unfortunately, I mean, if, if we live long enough, all of us will lose a parent. Miscarriage is extremely common. One in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. We many of us have moved and felt deeply lonely. Um, many of us have struggled with doubt and disappointment. Mine was kind of a compressed timeline, but it was, it's sort of the kind of ordinary tragedy that makes up even the best of lives, right? Even sort of all of us. Um, and I say that to say that I think that grief is really more um, common it's more ordinary than we make space for often in our worship. That, um, that a lot of our lives 
not just the deepest times of tragedy, but a lot of our lives are marked, I, would, I make the point in my book, kind of all of our lives are marked in some way or another by loss. That's not all there is. Of course, there's joy, there's, there's moments of great beauty and goodness and ecstasy and um, excitement. But loss is always sort of there. I talk about it in the book as a pet, sort of that sits in the corner of every room. It's just kind of around. So as I was going through this, this is all kind of background, actually, to say as I was sort of going through this and this time of doubt and um, struggle in my life, I was on the phone with a friend. Um, and I'll tell you guys, I don't say in the book who he is, but I'll tell you because some of you may know him or know his work, but it's Andy Crouch, who's been a friend and a mentor to me. And Andy, we were actually talking about something completely different and just sort of as a aside, as, a, as just a passing comment, because Andy just like throws out wisdom like when he sneezes. Um, it's, it's sort of all the time. And so he said, um, he said, you know, we all kind of believe the prosperity gospel, don't we? Like, even those of us who don't, we, we all sort of absorb the prosperity gospel. We expect God to make our life work out, and that if we do our part, God will make things go well for us. And this kind of sneaks in to the way we do ministry, to the way we relate to God, to the way we pray. So for the most part, I think probably most of us here don't, don't subscribe to the prosperity gospel out loud, but it kind of seeps into us. It's the American way of faith. And if, if you're thinking, okay, there's no way that's me, um, let's just do a quick thought experiment. Picture, if you will, close your eyes. Picture kind of the worst thing that you can imagine happening, whatever that is for you. And when you're imagining it, think about what kind of your first reaction is. And I'm, I'm sure that there's lots of things that come up, grief, anger, horror. But among those, I wonder if one of that, those reactions would be, if only I would have blank. If only I would have prayed more. If only I was a better parent. If only I was a better pastor, if I was a better student, if I was a better Christian, if I had more faith, if I was whatever, if I was more beautiful, if I was more in control, if I was less emotional, then, then this thing wouldn't have happened. You can open your eyes if you haven't. If you think um, that, that's really understandable. But it shows that at some level, we kind of believe that if we can be good enough, if we can get things right enough, then we can keep it where no bad things will happen to us, or at least to those we love. Or at least the worst won't happen to us. <coughs> or maybe you think, um, this one applies to me. Do you kind of live your life believing that if you work hard enough, if you do the right thing, if you listen to God enough and make the right choices, if you can be faithful, that um, you can kind of keep your life intact, that we can sort of scissor hold our life together, that you can kind of plan your way to a happy existence, that you um, can sort of 
plan your way to the life that, that you want. And I could sort of catch myself believing that, that I can sort of like be strong enough to hold my life together, to make things work. Um, and that I can sort of engineer my life to avoid suffering, and particularly that I, for me, that I can engineer my life to avoid um, the people I love suffering, my children suffering. And I have this kind of gut-level assumption that God should be my ally in that project, right? That God is my ally in the project of making my life happy and free from suffering. Or at least uh, that he should help, that he should kind of help my project to happen. A Barna study just a few years ago showed that the most commonly stated reason for unbelief among millennials and Gen Zers, these are folks who have walked away from the church, the most common reason they stated is that they, this is a quote, have a hard time believing that a good God would allow for so much evil or suffering in the world. This is an urgent question that people are bringing particularly young people. This question is in every, every pew, in every service that you preach. How can God be good? And how could a good God allow so much evil or suffering in the world? So this is an increasingly common struggle. More young people voice frustration and confusion about this question, which is called theodicy, or the problem of evil, or the problem of pain, than in the last several generations. And so, by the way, theodicy, I talk about this in the book, is, is the kind of philosophical question of how can God be all good and all powerful and bad things happen in the world. But the, um, but the theodicy, or the problem of evil, the problem of pain, is m- much more than a ph- philosophical question. It's an existential one. It's a crisis of faith. It's something that we feel on a deep heart level, on a gut level. Seminarians um, who are training in ministry, pastors, we want to offer people answers. That's why we're here, is to find some stuff out, to tell other people. But we aren't going to give people an answer that makes their suffering okay, or that ties it in a little bow, or that makes it all right. But we can be really honest with them about who God is in the middle of it, about what God promises and what God doesn't. And we have to talk about this head on. There is someone I know, um, I'll call her Tina, that's not her name, but she, um, she told me a story about, about kind of why she walked away from the church. And when she told me why, she said, you know, I was a leader in my youth group. I loved Jesus. I did everything right. I was obedient. I was a virgin when I got married. I trusted God. I prayed. I read the Bible. And in my late 20s, my life fell apart. She ended up getting a divorce. Her husband was not a good guy. He was a, he was a church leader that was not a good guy. And she said, I realized 
that I was promised that if I did all the right stuff and I followed Jesus the right way, that my life would work out. And it didn't. And so she, she walked away. And I've met so many people like this, that we sell people but Jesus by telling them that Jesus will make them feel fulfilled or make them have happy lives or good marriages or that um, they will feel like their lives are constantly meaningful, that this is kind of the happiest way to live. And we are making atheists because we're selling them a God under false pretenses. And then when those pretenses prove false, because they are false, because that is not what Jesus promised, then they say the whole story of the gospel is not true. And we're setting our people up as pastors. We're setting them up to walk away from the faith not because of anything deficient about the faith, but because we're not being honest with them. So we so easily kind of slide into selling them the social benefits of the gospel or the internal good feelings of Christianity when what we are called to do is introduce people to reality, reality with a capital R, the truth of the universe. And what is reality? I mean, this is what you're studying here, right? You should be on a journey to answer that question. But when we boil it, like, what we're looking at is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation or restoration. We were made for a world that is whole, that is intact. We were made with great dignity that cannot be taken away by sin or the fall. We are wrecked. By the fall, we know this reality even from a very early age that things are not right, things are not how they ought to be. Redemption came in Jesus, and we await for him to set all things right, to make all things new, not just our individual souls, but all things, all systems, all nations new. So we talk And we need to talk as pastors, as people that are going out into ministry, about the reality of brokenness and sadness and sorrow and disappointment, but also about the reality that we, that they, that our people can know God, a God who has lived and died and is risen. The um, Catholic Catechism, I hope, I, I think Asbury's rolling over in his grave that I'm quoting the Catholic Catechism here, but it, the Catholic Catechism, which is, this is good, says there's not a single aspect of the Christian message, there's not a single aspect of the gospel that is not in part an answer to the question of evil, to the question of theodicy and suffering. And it, it takes the whole story of Scripture the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, to answer back to the question, how do we trust God who lets bad things happen? So what is the promise of God amid suffering? Well, it's not, as we said, that we won't have suffering. It's not that it won't hurt, that it will feel somehow spiritual and triumphant. 
It's not that we won't struggle with doubt. It's not that if you do your part that you'll have everything, you know, you'll have like a great marriage and a great sex life and a book contract and like it'll all work out and, and I don't know, you'll be on The Tonight Show. Um, or whatever your version of that is. Um, it's this, it's that we will have eternal life. But it's really important because I think when we say that, we can think of heaven, and that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way the scriptures define eternal life. In John 17, where Jesus prays for us before his death, and this is how he defines eternal life. He said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. This is not something distant, far off, that happens when we die. This is something we could experience now, in the middle of the lives we are living now. And we have um, all that we can offer people, all that you are, are leaving Asbury able to offer people is the mystery of knowing God. But what we have to offer people is the mystery of knowing God. And that is sufficient. That is a life of flourishing. Everything I'm saying is not because God is out to get us or to sick suffering on us. God is very good. But his goodness is different than the goodness that we find in consumerism. It's different than the goodness that we find in the Apple Corporation. God is not after a good Yelp review. Uh, he is not trying to prove his goodness to us as, as if we're his customers. He is truly good, and he is after us to love us, which is a much more vulnerable place to be with God than as a customer or a consumer. <clears throat> Romans 8, 16 through 17 says that we are God's children and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. And the verse we read this morning from 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort or consolation, the the um, translation we read this morning is consolation, which I actually love. I think it's a more theologically rich word than comfort. But that verse, I don't know if you heard it, plays constantly comfort and trouble, comfort and trouble, consolation and trouble, consolation and trouble. It says it again and again in these passages, who comforts us in our troubles, who consoles us, so that we can be a consolation to those in trouble with the consolation that we ourselves have received from God. For we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our consolation abounds in Christ. In this Corinthians passage, this word consolation or comfort is the same word used for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the comforter. So in this passage, Paul is talking not just about comfort that you get from like good coffee, you know, which is a comfort for sure, but, but he's talking about the presence of the Spirit of God in suffering. 
There's this weaving together of suffering and the place of God's presence. This is hard for us as Americans because we, we kind of want to see this through the cultural lenses of, of the way that we um, think about comfort. But um, God's comfort can't be defined by privilege or uh, bodies that work well or the American dream. It's a comfort that's gritty. It's a comfort that's hard won. And it's a comfort of God's very presence, God himself. He comforts him, us with his very life, with his presence. So I turned 42 this year, and um, I've been using this year to meditate on Psalm 42. Um, I kind of, this is a trick. You can do this every year. And if you live long enough, you'll get through all of them. Um, <laughs> it's up to God how many psalms I get through. But um, as I've been meditating on this psalm, what's interesting to me about it is that over and over, the psalmist asks this question, why are you downcast, O my soul? And... Um, if being a Texan who was brought up to really ignore grief and focus on the bright side and don't whine, the question of why are you downcast was not something I was ever asked. And the psalmist asked himself, why are you downcast? And he doesn't say don't be downcast. He says if you, if you trusted God more, you would not be downcast, or you shouldn't be downcast. He he gets to the place where he says, put your hope in God. But first, he says, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? And he listens for an answer. And then he says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. It asks this question, why? There's a curiosity here. And I want to say that we cannot call people or ourselves to put our hope in God or to put their hope in God before we honestly and truthfully ask them, why are you downcast? And we listen for the answer. We truly slow down and hear them. And then, and only then, we can respond by offering the hope of God's presence in the midst of suffering. And it's interesting here, I, I, I have a piece coming out this week in the New York Times where I interviewed Tim Keller um, so I'm giving you exclusive content that hasn't been published yet. But Tim um, is a great, has been a great encouragement, and he has, he's, he has cancer, and it's, um, it's very serious cancer, and the doctors told him they expect to die from this. Most patients that has, have his kind of cancer don't live another year after diagnosis. And I spoke with him. And he said, you know, um, before, you know, I would sometimes go through the motions. I would pray, and maybe I wasn't getting much out of it. And he said, now, if I'm praying 15 minutes or so, at some point, I'm going to cry out and say, God, I need more than this, or I'm not going to make it through the day. And he said, what has surprised me is that when you need more of God, there is more of God to be had. And he says this after a life of ministry. And he said, and I sometimes think, well, why didn't I see this part of God before? He 
He's been preaching around the world <laughs> for decades. And he said, it's because I didn't need him like this before. I didn't need, I didn't have this level of need. But he talked about Psalm 42 specifically to me. And he said, it's different than prayer. Because prayer, he said, it's different than just reading the Bible. He said, who's the psalmist talking here? He's not talking to the listener. He's not talking to God. He's talking to himself. He's taking these truths about God. And he's, this is um, Tim's words, he's screwing them down into his heart until they can catch fire. And so we need to sort of turn towards ourselves and, and, and ask ourselves, where do we deeply need God? Where do we need more of God? Because there is more of God to be gotten. Part of this um, that I'm talking about this morning is that we need not just sort of um, discipleship of our minds or discipleship of our actions or the praxis, but we need discipleship of our emotions, how we respond to suffering, what God is doing in our hearts, how we respond to grief. We need emotional discipleship. We have to help folks that we minister to be honest about the world and about what's inside them. And I want to be really clear here, I'm not talking about trying to be a therapist. Um, if you're a therapist, that's great. But if you're a pastor, and if pastors try to be therapists, we just end up being bad therapists. Um, but I, I'm talking about being curious about how God wants to meet ourselves and our people in our emotional lives. How God wants to meet um, the people that we are discipling in their emotional life. How he wants to heal our passions, to use the language of the ancient church. How he wants to heal our longings, our deepest motivations. In some silent place in our hearts, we've been taught, as kind of Americans and consumers, and maybe just human beings, that we sense God's pleasure when things go well for us. And we sense his disapproval, if not outright absence, if things go poorly or in our disappointments or in our loss. And this births kind of a species of the Christian faith that wants resolution and performance and results. And we, and, and we put this on other people. And we often have a hard time knowing how to face and help others face situations where suffering will not resolve anytime soon, where burdens will not be lifted anytime soon. And we want suffering often to have a clear kind of beginning, middle, and end, and something that we can get through in a story and a tidy re resolution. And this is not new. This is human. M Martin Luther made a distinction between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. In the theology of glory, God shows his trustworthiness by showing pleasure, by showing prosperity, freedom from suffering for the righteous, for those who kind of hold up their end of the bargain. And in contrast, the theology of the cross, and this is what you guys are turning to when you're turning to the cross, discovers, Luther says, that God is, this is his words, hidden in suffering. This is very counterintuitive. 
Suffering hurts, and so, of course, we reflexively, with, we want to get away from it. We want to get away from the bad feelings, right? So we cultivate all kinds of addictions and distractions and coping mechanisms to sort of avoid feeling bad feelings. And we need to learn and teach our people as pastors that we need to sort of walk into the negative emotions and face the scariness of that because Jesus beat us there, because he is waiting for us there. So I want to tell you a story to close about um, a youth minister. Um, and this was, uh, I might mispronounce his name because I've only read it. I've not heard it. Um, and how this sort of looked in his life. How it looked to encounter God in sadness and disappointment and loneliness and even doubt. When the Soviets took over uh, Romania in 1944, they began rounding up Christians and subjecting them to torture designed uh, to make them repudiate the faith. And George Kalsiu, an Orthodox priest, um, during this time had a series of lectures on the basics of Christianity for the Romanian youth. And so he was arrested um, and condemned to death. And while he was on death row, he realized that he was experiencing, this is a quote from, from him. He said he was experiencing the deep presence of Christ in suffering. He was experiencing every um, small blessing that he experienced as the very presence of Christ. Whether it was a visitation by an insect in his cell or a passing conversation with a guard, all of these things all of these were things that he could be grateful for and find Christ's presence in. He was miraculously spared death and released and put into exile, and he was sent to the States, and he served the rest of his life in a small parish in Florida for the rest of his life, which I think if you're exiled, that's one of the better places to be exiled to. Um, <laughs> so he was interviewed later in his life when he was in Florida, on his time in prison and uh, after the war. And this is what he said. This is from a fellow pastor. He said, Christ did not come into the world to eliminate suffering. Christ did not even come into the world to explain it. He came to fill human suffering with his presence. This is why where suffering is great, their God is. Their Christ is in us. If you want to feel the presence of God, go into the hospitals. There you will see the suffering of innocent children, the suffering of old people. The presence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ, is in all their suffering. When Christ came into the world and suffered, he suffered with me. He suffered with you. Can you imagine how much dignity he gave to human suffering? To suffer with us, to fill our suffering with his presence. Can you imagine how much dignity he gave to human suffering?
We are losing a generation of people in the church because we and the world around them have told them that God mostly is there when they're happy and that God mostly wants them to be happy. And we have left them unprepared for a suffering that for all of us inevitably awaits us. We've told them that Jesus is a useful accessory, accessory for their privileged American life where they're promised a nice job in the suburbs with 2.4 healthy, happy children. Jesus promised that we would suffer. He called us even to a cross. But Christ came to fill our suffering with his presence, with his dignity, with his meaning. Our job as your job, my job as a pastor, your job as students and future pastors and teachers here and leaders in the church is to steward the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4, this is what Paul says. He says, this is how one should regard us. Paul is saying, this is how you should think of this vocation. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You are stewarding the mysteries of God in the presence of suffering in people's lives, and the presence of joy, and the presence of confusion. But always, you are stewarding the mystery of God in the presence of suffering. So I want to take a minute, just a second, to end. And close your eyes. Be quiet, just for a second. And I want you just to ask, turn towards yourself and say, why are you downcast, O my soul? And now, in these next few minutes and and through the next song, ask God, what would it look like to put your hope in God in the midst of whatever specific sorrow you are bringing here? And we pray, Holy Spirit, come, show us why our souls are downcast, and teach us to listen and to listen to you and to put our trust in you because you are good in a way that we have never seen before. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.